You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. We are in this series called Shiny Objects. And the idea behind Shiny Objects is this, that we want to stay on mission in a world of distraction. Because you and I, we get distracted, don't we? We're distracted people. Uh, so often, even I was seeing an article this week that just said, hey, parents, when you first see your kid, put your cell phone away. Why? Because we're distracted people. We get distracted all the time. And, and I want to jump right into it today. Here's why you need this sermon. You say, why did I come today? Why do I need this? Uh, it was a great time of worship that we had. Some of you were like, it was long. It just felt like that song would never end because you don't like singing. Some of you. Others of you were like, it was the best thing ever. It was great. But here's why you need this sermon. We get easily distracted. To slow down and focus on the Lord and authentically worship God is so critically important to who he has called us to be. And chances are that your life is distracted by shiny objects. When the world wants to make something great or important, they make a shiny object, right? It might be the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, like this dome, this golden dome. I can't imagine what that thing costs to put over a rock where they say, you know, some event happened that was, you know, great. And, and they do that. Uh, today, somebody will win the Vince Lombardi trophy, and they make a shiny object to symbolize that trophy. And the truth is, we don't worship the trophy. We worship God. We worship the God who didn't make the Vince Lombardi trophy. We worship the God who made Vince Lombardi. Amen? We don't worship the falcons. We worship the God who designed and crafted and created a a falcon to actually fly and soar to his glory in creation. We worship a God who still is raising up his church as living stones to be patriots who fight for the truth and who walk and exemplify what it looks like to live as children of light in a dark, dark world. You might remember back when you may have seen the Indiana Jones movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, just a great movie. It's got Sean Connery in it. And, it, uh, and it, you know, of course, Harrison Ford. And near the end of the movie, they're after the chalice, this, this chalice thing that would be the, the, the cup that they thought that Jesus would have drunk from at the Last Supper or dipped the bread in. And, and he would have done And, and there, you remember, they enter like this cave and it's really hard to get in there and they had to walk across the path over the chasm. You know the one I'm talking about, right? So they do this. They finally get in there and, of course, the bad guys are with them, and they decide what would the chalice be that Jesus may have drunk from. And of course, there's a bunch, a whole bunch of cups. It's not just one cup, there's a whole bunch. And the old knight there says, choose wisely. And then, of course, you know, the bad guy, they go forward, they grab the golden one, the one that looked like it was, of course, a shiny object, right? And, and he gets and he dips it in the water and he drinks from it, and then he shrivels up and dies. And the old knight says, he chose poorly. You remain, you know, and then you're like, oh my goodness, and then they, you know, Indiana Jones is like, I've got all these cups to choose from. He chooses just a simple carpenter's cup. That's what he chooses, and, and the movie goes on, and, and I don't know about you, but I think sometimes when it comes to shiny objects, I think there's this cry in our culture, or even from the Lord, that would say, choose wisely. What's the wise thing to do? But sometimes we're distracted by shiny objects and we look around in our culture and we begin to say, you know what, I'd rather do it my way. I want to do what I want to do. We have this fierce independence. And in the words of the famous theologian Frank Sinatra, most people want to sing, I did it 
my way, right? Help me with that, ready? My way. Yeah, you want to do it your way, right? There's just something fiercely independent about us, and there are times that we want to do things our way. Well, that's where the nation of Israel had found themselves. They had been doing things their way. You remember, we've been following the Ark of the Covenant as it was captured by the Philistines, and then as God brought it back to the people of Israel, and as they came, and then they looked in it, and 70 people died, and then they said, send it away from our town, and they send it up to Kiriath-Yerahim, which means the city of the forest, and they send it up there, and it sat for 20 years. Well, today we're fast-forwarding those 20 years. If you have your Bible, open with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6 beginning with verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000, and he and all his men went to Baal. All right, I want to just time out right there on that word. That word is actually two words. The first one is Baal, which is a false god of the Philistines. And then Ah means God. So literally this town, when it used to be occupied by, a, you know, a foreign country, named it Baal is God. That was the name of the town. But the Israelites, when they captured it, they renamed it to Kiriath-Yerahim. It's the same town. It's just referenced in this part of scripture as what was its former name. And it's now Kiriath-Yerahim, the city of the forest in Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which was called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim, on the ark. And they set the ark of God on a new cart. Is that what they're supposed to do? When they transport the ark, what are they supposed to do with it? They're supposed to carry it on poles that slip through the rings in the ark, and the priests are supposed to carry it. But what happens? After 20 years, people forget. And they think, well, I'll just do it our way. In fact, they do it the way the Philistines did when they sent it back to them. They put it on a cart. So they set it on the, the ark of God in a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and my favorite as a drummer, cymbals. Yes, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. And then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day the place is called Perez Uzzah, which means the Lord's wrath broke out against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So they boxed it up and they put it in a warehouse somewhere. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that was Indiana Jones, right? But he kind of has a similar reaction, doesn't he? How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Here's the picture. They finally want to bring the ark of God up into the city of David, and they're having a worship service, a celebration, and they think they're doing it right, but they're not. They think they're worshiping correctly, but they're worshiping wrong. They're worshiping incorrectly, and when the ark, 
when the oxen stumble and the cart shakes, Uzzah reaches out and he puts his hand, he touches the living presence of God. He actually reaches out and he touches that presence of God. He's not the high priest. He's not given atonement for himself and for the sins of the people. He simply is, in a sense, walked, thrown the curtain open, walked into the Holy Holies, and grabbed the visible presence of, our, of the ark, and God has warned, if you do that, you will die. Now, was he at fault? Probably not. He's probably just like you and me. The cart shakes. You think that thing's going to fall off, and you just react, right? And David's thinking, he just reacted. But God struck him dead because God had been very clear. And it really wasn't the fault of Uzzah that he died. Let's be honest, it was the fault that the people of Israel were not transporting the ark as God had given them clear instructions to do. They weren't carrying it. They were worshiping. They thought it was all going good, but it wasn't going as good as they thought. And David has a reaction like you and me, maybe when you have a bad church experience. Maybe at that time you say, I, I don't know, I'm going to shove God away. I'm afraid of the Lord. I'm intimidated. God didn't do things my way, and you push him away. And so for three months, David sends that ark away. He won't take it up into the city of David. On your outline today, there's a couple things I want to point out to you. First, when, the peop when people push God away, they miss out on the blessings they could have enjoyed and experienced. And that's what happens when you and I go it alone. We miss out on actually the intimacy of a relationship with God. We miss out on the blessings we could have otherwise enjoyed. We miss out saying, God, I, I, I'm, I have something against you or something in between me and you. So I'm going to shove you away and we miss out on what we could have otherwise enjoyed. The blessings of God, the enjoyment of God. Why? Because we're stiff-arming him. But then we see a change in David. David's repentance was to stop blaming God and to start honoring God by doing things God's way. If you look in 2 Chronicles, a parallel passage to this story, you see that David goes back and with the priests, they search out the scriptures and find out what did we do wrong. He stopped blaming God. He's like, what did we do wrong? And they looked and they found the way that they were to carry the ark and what they were to do. And so they said, now we'll come back together. Now we'll do it right. We are going to humble ourselves and stop doing it our way. And we're going to do it God's way. And so the story picks up now in verse 14. Now, David, now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring the ark up of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark, see the change? When those who were carrying the ark had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. So in other words, what he did is they grabbed the ark, they put it on their shoulders, they took one Two, three, four, five, six steps. Now, before they get to seven, the perfect number, the number of God, the number of rest, the number of perfection, before they get to that, he stops them. Don't take another step. Up until now, it has been the work of carrying the ark, but right now, we are going to dedicate ourselves and this act to the Lord. We're going to honor God. And right there, 
They do a sacrifice, a burnt offering before the Lord, before they even continue. What do they do? They started getting in to worship. They started doing the thing, and they stopped right then and said, it's got to be about God, not about us. Verse 14, it says, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. There's an amazing picture here. Before, they were rejoicing, hey, we got the ark, we got the ark. But it was kind of like the army when they took the ark of God into battle. And they shouted, and they shouted so loud that the ground shook, and the Philistines were like, we're afraid. And then the Philistines ended up whooping them and capturing the ark. That first worship service was kind of the same. They were going up, they said, we got the, you know, we got the ark, and we got it on this cart. And the guy stumbled, the oxen stumbled, the guy reaches out, touches the presence of God, he dies. And everything goes south. But this time... This time, when you and I repent, when you and I come back to God, when you and I walk toward the Lord Jesus Christ, an amazing thing happens. Our repentance is followed by rejoicing and pleasurable worship. Pleasurable worship. Pleasing worship, not only to the Lord, but to us, right? It's pleasurable, it's pleasing, it is a good thing. And so this happens, it's an amazing moment because people are enjoying this worship. They are enjoying it. In fact, David is dancing before the Lord with all his might. He is so excited. He is, he's had this repentance in his heart. It goes on, it says this in verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, now this is David's wife, given to him in marriage by Saul, the former king, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Well, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. I mean, this is a great day. They went to church, they got cakes, and they got raisins and they, and they brought the ark of God up and there's this rejoicing and, and the king gives gifts to the people all the people and they go away just so blessed they're rejoicing in their homes verse 20 when David returned to home to bless his household Michael daughter of Saul came out to meet him and said how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Thank you, honey, David said. No, right? David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by the slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children till the day of her death. People are like, did they just get in a little marital spat? What happened there? What happened there was this. This daughter of Saul is simply representing a nation of Israel who would do things their own way. When it came to worship, her father led the people by just doing things his own way. 
At times he would institute sacrifices, not waiting for the prophet. Other times he felt like he wasn't hearing from God, so he went to consult a witch, a medium, to find out what he thought he was to do next. This is a guy whose leadership was emphasized by complaining to his people that no one told them anything. Nobody tells me anything. Nobody tells me where David's hiding out. Nobody tells me anything. And he complains, who's going to give you gifts? Who's going to give you gifts? It's only me, the king, but you're following David. And he complains. And Michael is representing a household where she grew up just seeing worship. Do what you want. Do as you see fit. That's what her father and his household modeled. And so when she looks out and she sees David dancing before the Lord, she does not look at the repentance of a guy who said, I did it my way and it was wrong. And I've come back to repent before the Lord and now I'm approaching him and I'm going to worship and I'm going to honor him with a heart that is sold out for the Lord. And now she's saying, what will people think? She's embarrassed. She's embarrassed by him because we only worship in the context of what is appropriate or proper or what people will think. In fact, her, her heart despises David's heart of repentance. She's not encouraging her husband. She's not applauding him to pursue the Lord and follow after him with all, her, all his heart. She's criticizing him. Why? Because she's representing a family, a household that has worshipped God as they've seen fit and it's led to the downfall of that household. So what does David say? He says, I'm worshiping the Lord. And then what does David do? By his actions, he doesn't carry on that family line. He's saying that kind of worship stops here. My family is going to become less. And God must become overwhelmingly important. That's what David's saying. He's saying, I'll make myself less. I'll even become more undignified before the Lord. I'm going to just worship him. And you know what? Because I'm authentically worshiping the king of kings and the Lord of lords, those who might observe those slave girls, they're going to hold me in honor. So what is his reply? I will lead my family in worship to become less, and God must become overwhelmingly important. All right, there's a snapshot right here, and I want you to catch it. The snapshot is people did things their own way. They were worshiping God as they thought was appropriate. And sometimes you and I walk into church and we do the same thing, right? I'm going to sing the songs today however I normally do. I'm going to take communion today like I normally do. I'm just going to honor God. This is what we do. This is what it looks like when I'm at church. This is what like, and and let me tell you, sometimes when you repent before the Lord and you say, I'm going to, I'm going to honor God. I'm going to do things differently. I guarantee you, you'll have a family member who will criticize it. They should be applauding you, but they disrespect it. It doesn't mean that when you repent and follow the heart of God, that you're going to get honor from everybody around you, right? In fact, what happens when you and I repent and honor God and say, I'm so tired of doing it my way. God, I'm going to do it your way. And as we begin to respond in that, our heart comes alive, our soul comes alive. But there will be people next to us who will put up their nose at that. They will criticize you. They will disrespect you for respecting God. Why? Because they've been disrespecting God for years. And you have to make a choice. How are you going to lead yourself spiritually? How are you going to lead your family spiritually spiritually? What are you going to do? Are you going to become more 
in, uh, dignified. David is interesting because he just says God must become, literally is what he's saying, God must become overwhelmingly important. Let me ask you this. Is God becoming overwhelmingly important in your life? Or is he kind of important? Is he a part of your life? But is that part of your life overwhelming the other parts of your life? That's what should happen. That when we honor and worship God, he should become overwhelmingly important. But what I want you to do now is flip over in your Bible to the New Testament, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because this Old Testament picture is a forecasting of a New Testament event. Because you say, well, in the Old Testament, of course that's how they do that. In the New Testament, they didn't have the ark. In the New Testament, they weren't honoring it in that way. Uh, in the New Testament, that's not what the early church did. They didn't have an ark in their sanctuary. Uh, that stayed back in the temple. And then when it was destroyed in AD 70, people still speculate to this day where the ark of God might be. And nobody knows. But what the New Testament makes clear is that God has put his spirit, his Holy Spirit, the presence of God in his people. He's put us on the inside. And so in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says this. Paul says to the church of Corinth, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. So what's he saying? Listen, the way that you're worshiping, the way that you're practicing worship, the way you're relating to each other has division, has disunity. The way that you come together to worship, your, your meeting isn't even doing any good. It's kind of like David's first attempt at bringing the ark up. It, it didn't go well. In fact, somebody died. That's a bad church service. I'm just saying, right? Please stay alive. You know, if you know, feel something coming, just let us know. We'll help you out, but stay alive. It's a bad church service, right? And Paul, who started the church in Corinth now as a fatherly figure, writes to them and says, your meetings are doing more harm than good. You have gotten distracted. You have gotten off mission because of some shiny objects in your, in your church. Number five in your outline says this, when your opinions cause division in the church, worship becomes self-seeking. When your opinions on things cause division in the church, your worship becomes self-seeking. So what do you do? You sit there, instead of worshiping the living God, you sit there as a judge on the other people worshiping God, right? Isn't that what Michael did? Didn't she look out the window? She, she shouldn't have been in the window. She should have been down with the people praising God, right? But what was she doing? She was in the loft, and she's looking out on the window, and she's judging She's judging what's happening down there. Well, I don't think they should worship like that. I don't think my husband should be dancing around like that. But what happens for you and me? When you allow your opinions to cause division in the church, then you start looking out for number one. How's this going to look to me? How's this going to look on the people that I like? Are they going to respect me? Is this going to embarrass us? What's happening here? And you begin to become self Seeking, you're no longer seeking God, you become self-seeking, you start doing as you see fit. So what was happening? When it came time for communion in the church in Corinth, here's what was happening. That, they, that people would show up early and they would have this, the Lord's Supper. They would eat all the crack, they'd eat all the bread, they'd eat all the communion elements, they'd eat all the food. And what would happen is the people who came a little bit later on, or maybe even on time, they would just have nothing, nothing to eat. And, and they would 
they would drink all the wine at that time, and they would drink it down so there was none left. In fact, they were drinking in church to the point of drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin. To have a drink isn't, but to, to drink to drunkenness is a sin. So Paul is just saying, listen, your communion service is a train wreck. You got people showing up, they're just looking out for number one, they're totally just, you know, throwing it down, and they're eating all the food, and they're just caring about themselves, and they're probably looking with their noses up at the people who came a little bit later. Nobody's waiting for anybody else. Nobody's taking communion together. Nobody's actually thinking about what communion means. They're just being selfish. They argued. They fed division. They ignored unity in the church, which dishonors the cost which Christ paid to bring unity between God and people. It was gross, it was self-seeking, and people were so easily offended. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, this is what Paul says. He's like, let's get back on mission. Let's get back to the basics. Here's what he says. For what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, here's the instructions. Listen to this. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body, this body of Christ, and the blood of the Lord. Everyone who ought to, or everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. What does that mean? Died. Verse 21, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. He's saying we're not to worship like the world. We're not to be like the world. We're not to look out for number one and do as we see fit. We are to come together, and when you and I have communion in this room, let me be critically careful with you. That you should not take communion here today if you're not a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter what other people around you think. Doesn't matter if you've done it before. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, this is not for you. Don't drink judgment on yourselves. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're taking it in an unworthy manner, self-seeking, worrying about what other people around you are thinking, if you're doing it in a way that just says, God, I'm going to do it my way and I'm going I'm to make this you know, a spiritual act, but you're not really saying... Am I a part of the body of Christ? Do I recognize that this represents his blood which brought forgiveness for me for my sin? The bread and the juice don't cleanse you. It's what the bread and the juice represent. That Jesus' blood, Jesus' body, his sacrifice is what cleanses you and you put faith in that. We're just remembering these are just elements to remember. They do no cleaning work in us. Only Jesus' blood, only Jesus' sacrifice, only Jesus' body cleans. So that's what we're remembering. I've been washed. I've been sanctified. I've been justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're remembering. If you're not remembering that, then chances are 
you maybe have gotten one degree off. You might be a little off mission. And God is saying today, no, we're going to worship. We're going to honor him. Father, we rejoice in you. Our hearts want to celebrate you. It's those times when we get to the end of ourselves and we just say, I'm going to humble myself, God, that all of a sudden something awakens in our soul. We just feel free to rejoice with you again. We feel free to delight in you again, that, God, we can delight in the living God. God, I pray that you would give freedom, a heart that just knows and understands and loves you for who you are, God, that lets, lets aside our petty things, lets aside our disagreements, God, that just lays and lays those things down so we can love you. Jesus, right now with our heads bowed, I just realize that there may be some here who they've never put their faith and trust in you. They've never realized that when you died on the cross, you were taking God's wrath upon us and Jesus took it on himself and he paid for it in full. And that he died and he rose to new life and that for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus as God, receive forgiveness for their sins. They are washed clean. And Jesus, right now, if there's some in this room who need to say yes to you for the first time, who need to say, I will put my faith and my trust and believe in you, that they would do it even at this moment. If that's you here today and you are recognizing that you need Jesus in your life, then you just pray a prayer like this, right where you're seated, Jesus hears you. And you say this, Jesus, today I give you me. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creation. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you rose from the dead because you're God. I ask you to make me a new creation on the inside and wash me clean. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.